This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Eleven presidents, the Pope, and dozens of world leaders have shared their personal thoughts about matters of faith with him. He has preached in person to more than 210 million people in 185 nations and territories, and vast numbers have read his books, listened to him on the radio, and watched him on television. We would like to give a wholehearted thank you to the folks at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for granting us permission to use the footage you're about to hear from their exceptional film, Billy Graham, An Extraordinary Journey. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Billy Graham. Billy Graham was born on a dairy farm in Charlotte, North Carolina, on November 7, 1918. As a boy, he spent his time following baseball, reading Tarzan, and perfecting his techniques swinging from vines in the nearby woods. Here's Billy's mother, Marl Graham, his sister, Jean, his brother, Melvin, and Billy himself. Every afternoon, as Billy came through the door, Mother! Those were his first words, and I knew Billy was on the premises. He read every Tarzan book, and then he would go down in the woods, and he would try to act out, so <laughs> didn't work too well. He and Melvin worked on the dairy farm. Melvin loved the hard work. Billy Frank really didn't like to do physical work. Never did. My brother was interested primarily in two things that would be baseball and girls. Uh, I'm not sure which order. I was just a carefree kid, having a big time doing everything else that every other high school kid was doing. I didn't care anything about God or religion or hell or the devil or anything else. Billy was brought up in a devout Christian household, but he had no interest in religious things. But when he was 15, a friend informed him that some of the high school students in Charlotte were going to picket the very popular traveling evangelist, Mordecai Ham, declaring, he has no business telling us how to live our lives this day and age. Billy went to see the standoff, but when the students failed to show up, he decided to go in and hear for himself what this preacher had to say. Here's Billy, the voice of Mordecai Ham and Billy's mother and brother. When Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte, I thought it was some sort of big circus or a big emotional event, and I didn't have any thoughts about ever going. I'd never seen such a large crowd attending a religious meeting, I think three or 4,000 people, and it made a great impression on me. And I decided I wanted to go back the next night, and then the next, and then the next. You cannot be justified by your own filthy rags and your own works it's what Christ has done for you and will do in you and all others. By that time, I was coming under conviction that I was a sinner, uh, that I needed uh, redemption myself, that I needed Christ in my heart. I was a church member, but I still knew that something was lacking. I knew that I didn't have that personal relationship with Christ. One night when the invitation was given, I just said, Lord, I'm going. And it was on the last verse of the last song that they sang, and about 400 people went forward the night I did. And when I stood there, I thought to myself, what a fool I make of myself. 
myself in front of all my friends here. I went up to my room that night, didn't feel any different. And I remember kneeling down, it was a full moonlight night, and uh, I'd never knelt before, I'd never prayed like that before. And I said, Lord, I don't know what's happened. I don't know what this means, but whatever it means, uh, I would appreciate your help. There was a definite turn in his life. We knew then that the Lord had really gotten a hold of him. His emphasis became more on what the preacher had been preaching and, and wanting to know where he could go and learn something about the Bible. In 1937, Billy enrolled in the Florida Bible Institute. It was here where he experienced a calling he couldn't deny. I just felt God was speaking to me. And he said, I want to use you. And I put up all the arguments I could that I was not capable, didn't have the proper education. But God was calling me and I knew that. So I got on my knees right there and I said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go and I'll be what you want me to be. And I said, uh, I'm, I'm yours. My first sermon in a sort of big church was the First Baptist Church of, of Venice. I preached on a Sunday morning and the church was filled, not to hear me, they didn't know me from Adam. I gave an invitation at the end of my talk for people to come forward, and I'd never done that before. And 11 people came. I'll never forget that. And uh, it, it, I was so moved in my own heart that I, I said, Lord, maybe, maybe you have given me a gift that I didn't know that I can give an invitation and people will come to Christ. And I began to give invitations after that. In 1945, Billy joined the Youth for Christ as a traveling evangelist, flying over one million miles during the next four years. But he soon faced a dilemma that threatened to derail his emerging ministry. Here's Billy's son, Franklin Graham. There was this debate going on within his friends that began to question scripture and were questioning why my father believed in the Bible to be the holy inspired word of God. The arguments were that you couldn't really trust the scriptures and that only the old fashioned uh, fundamentalist could uh, trust the scriptures. And I began to think, well, perhaps they're right. Maybe this Bible isn't as authoritative as I thought it was. And I remember how disturbed I was by that because I'd always believed in the Bible. Billy Graham was at a crossroads. The summer of 1949 would bring him to a watershed moment. And you've been listening to the life story of Billy Graham, as important a person as there was in the 20th century. And I don't mean just a pastor or a faith leader. I just mean as influential a person as there was in the 20th century. And you're hearing it in his own words mostly and family and friends and associates. And when we come back, we'll continue this remarkable story, a remarkable faith story, a remarkable human story, Billy Graham's story here on Our American Story.
And we continue now with the story of Billy Graham's life. And Greg Hengler is always doing a great job on the piece. And again, we want to thank the people over at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for using so much of this footage. Let's get back to Billy Graham. I remember many years ago, I went through a terrible struggle intellectually about the Bible. And I was concerned and worried and battling with myself. And I remember going out in the moonlight, out in the forest, and I took this Bible. And I said, Lord, I don't understand all about this Bible. There are many things I cannot explain. And I remember laying the Bible out on a stump. And I said, Lord, this is your book. I'm going to accept it by faith, like I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and he saved me and changed me and transformed me. I'm accepting this as your word by faith. I remember I used to prepare my sermons by getting a little outline and then tearing up a Bible and, and pasting them under those different points. And I just kept quoting the scriptures and saying, the Bible says, and it had its own built-in power, and God honored it. The Bible says, I am the Lord. I change not. Evidence of his new confidence presented itself in Los Angeles. Here's Billy Graham's biographer, William Martin, and nephew Mel. When we started in those meetings in the tent at Washington and Hill Street, I had this tremendous experience in which I had experienced the authority of the scriptures. And I went there and quoted the scriptures. I believe this sincerely from the depths of my heart. The meetings began to gather a little momentum during those first three weeks. And then one night, in what is one of the pivotal events in Billy Graham's career, he showed up at the tent and the place was overflowing with uh, newspaper reporters. I said, what has happened? Why are you all here? And one of them said, you've just been kissed by William Randolph Hearst. And he showed him a piece of paper that looked like it had been torn off of a wire service machine and there were two famous words on it, Huff Graham. You know, I never met Mr. Hurst. I never had any correspondence with him in my whole life. Whatever the reason, it certainly started a chain of events that I never dreamed. And then that followed by Associated Press, United Press, International News Service, soon afterwards stories in Time, Life, Newsweek, and Billy Graham became nationally known. After that, the tent was expanded, people standing outside, and the revival went on another four weeks, which placed something of a burden on Billy Graham. One night, at the encouragement of his wife and her Christian friends, Louis Zamperini reluctantly joined the crowd. He gained fame as an Olympic track star in 1936, and then, while on a search and rescue mission during World War II, Mechanical difficulties forced Zamperini's plane to crash into the ocean. After drifting at sea for 47 days, he was taken to a Japanese prison camp where he was tortured. Though he returned home a hero, he was filled with bitter rage towards his Japanese captor known as the Bird, and had turned to alcohol to drown his pain. Here's Louis Zamperini. Billy Graham just happened to quote the right scriptures and he said the right things that really stabbed me in the heart and I realized what I had to do. And the question in that day will be, what did you do with Jesus? Have you trusted Christ Jesus as Savior? It all hit me at one time before I got to the main aisle and there I made my decision. 
I knew when I turned to the right, I knew it was all over. And it was. I got back here, accepted Christ, and my life was completely changed, and it's been changed ever since. After what became an eight-week-long revival, nothing would ever be the same for Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth Graham. Here's Billy's son, Ned. There would never have been a Billy Graham without a Ruth Graham. In 1940, at nearly 22 years of age, Billy was six feet and two inches tall, weighed about 160 pounds, and spoke with a strong southern drawl. It was at this time where Billy met Ruth Bell while continuing his studies at Wheaton College near Chicago. The daughter of medical missionaries in China, she was known for her deep and disciplined Christian faith and mischievous fun. Here's Billy and his mother. I was working on a furniture truck in the afternoons for 50 cents an hour. This man that ran the furniture truck began to tell me about this girl from China. He said, she's the girl for you. Well, I had my eyes already on another girl. But when I came out and saw her standing there, he said, that is Ruth Bell. At that moment, I was in love. And not only in love, something told me inside, she'll be your wife. He was so impressed by her, he wrote home and says, that is the girl I'm going to marry. I was frightened to death to ever ask her for a date, but I finally worked up enough courage to ask her to go at Christmas time to, to the Messiah. And so I took her to the Messiah, and she was everything that I had heard about her. Here's Ruth. I remember when I was praying that night. Now, mind you, I didn't even know the man. I'd just been with him. That, uh, for that one date. But I just prayed and I said, Lord, if you will let me share his life, I will consider it the greatest honor possible. And um, fortunately, I didn't know what lay ahead. I wouldn't have had the nerve to pray a prayer like that. Here's Franklin and Ned. My mother loved my father and my father loved and adored her. And it was a partnership. They were called together as a team. Mother was the tether to dad's balloon. Could you imagine saying goodbye to my father knowing that he's going to be gone not just for a week, but for two months, four months, six months? I don't know how she did it. A lot of times I would go down this driveway here with tears in my eyes. I didn't want to go because I knew it'd be several weeks or months before I'd see her. Here's daughter Gigi. There were times when she would go and take a jacket out of his closet and sleep with it so she could smell the smell. And for a young woman, that's tough. Ruth's commitment enabled Billy to remain faithful to God's call as opportunities to reach people with the gospel grew beyond anything they could have ever imagined. A journey that would last almost six decades. Here's former news anchor Charles Gibson, Franklin Graham and Billy's Music and Program Director, Cliff Barrows. There has always been a hunger for faith in this country and for answers. He really brought that basic yearning and longing in people to the forefront. He had a, a burden and a call on his life to take the gospel message to as many people as he possibly could. He had preached to more people face to face. 
than any other person in history. You never hear Jesus saying, I think, or perhaps this is the way. He always said, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Bill said, I will go anywhere, at any time, at any cost, to preach the gospel. God took him at his word, and Bill took God at his word. Not only was Billy Graham willing to go anywhere, he was also willing to use every effective communication tool available. On June 1st, 1957, Americans witnessed the first live telecast of a Billy Graham crusade. Here's Kathy Lee Gifford, Tom Brokaw, and Britt Hume. No matter what your race, whatever color the skin, God loves you. He knew how valuable media was. He knew how important it was to get his crusades on television. Then millions and millions, exponentially, people would see it. Dr. Graham had all the qualities, handsome as a movie star. He spoke in language that everybody could understand. Television was a perfect medium for him. I'm asking you tonight to make a clear And he had this spark in his eyes that was visible. You kind of couldn't take your eyes off. And you're listening to the life story of Billy Graham, and my goodness, what a story it is indeed. A burden and calling on his life, his son described, taking the gospel to the world. He preached to more people than anyone in world history, and that is indeed why we're covering this story. Because there's never been one like him, there may never be one like him. I'll go anywhere at any time, at any cost, to spread the gospel. And my goodness, Billy Graham did just that. And his use of television, radio, and every possible communication tool, well, he did it, and still to this day, so much of his work is now spreading around on the Internet. So many of his sermons, which are as relevant today as they were then. As always, Graham, a great, great communicator and proselytizer. When we come back... The great Billy Graham, his life story continues. And thanks again to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for providing so much of this remarkable source footage. Billy Graham's life story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life story of Billy Graham here on Our American Stories. Let's pick up where we last left off. No matter the audience or medium, Billy was always faithful to the message. Here he is with Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, Phil Donahue, and Larry King. Are you criticized for coming on the show by the more oh, about? <laughs> say, what are you doing? There are a few people that criticize me, but I always uh, tell them that uh, Christ went among the publicans and sinners, and I can come with Jack Parr. <laughs> the Ten Commandments can be broken in your heart by thought and intent, and that's the reason the Bible says that everybody's a sinner. Even Ed is a sinner. <laughs> well, that that's, <laughs> comes as quite a surprise. They, 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 <laughs> 
Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after in your heart, you've already committed adultery. I really have trouble with that one, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> no, really I'll tell you why. The Bible says all have sinned. And that's the reason we need the forgiveness of God, and that's why Christ died on the cross. Okay, I don't want to belabor you with Bill, that. Bill, but... you know, you really blushed. What? <laughs> no, here's my... Daddy would accept to go on these secular programs because he felt like this was just one more way that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be preached. And whether he was on Larry King Live or Meet the Press or any show he did that was non-religious in any way, he never got off message. What is your purpose? He said, go into the whole world and proclaim this message that God loves people, that He's interested in people, He wants to help them in their present situation, and He wants to save their souls. That's the reason it's so important to know the Word of God. You always knew with Graham that it was about the message and not about the man. Many of you tonight desperately need Jesus Christ. Who is this unique person that comes across the pages of history? The Bible from Genesis to Revelation points to Christ. He was the Son of God. He was the only one in the universe that could bear all of our sins. The human heart's the same the world over, and the gospel is the same. It hasn't changed at all, and people respond to it. I believe you are here by divine appointment. I believe this is your night with Almighty God. Here's NFL coach Tony Dungy. I just loved it. He didn't try to overwhelm you with big words. It was so point blank, he knew exactly what he meant. I know that in the audience, that almost everybody there has experienced loneliness, they've experienced uh, sin that they're sorry for, and there are people there that are afraid, and there are people there that are hungry for something to believe in now. The cross, God is saying to the whole world, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Billy Graham fought against racism his whole life, and especially during its peak in the 1960s. Some people are predicting the possibility of a race war. It's not a problem in Alabama alone. It's a world problem, wherever you have two races living. Is there an answer? Yes, there is an answer. The answer is in the cross of Jesus Christ, and there is a possibility of spiritual brotherhood in Christ alone. I have some very sad news for all of you. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Graham, I believe you've just been informed of the tragic death of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Yes, and uh, I was just informed about uh, five minutes ago, and uh, it comes as one of the greatest shocks of my entire life. There is no excuse ever for hatred. There is no excuse ever for bigotry and intolerance and prejudice. We are to love as God loved us. Here's Bernice King. I think both Dr. Graham and my father were trying to make the world a better place. Here's Reverend Howard Jones. Billy and Martin were friends, and a lot of whites damned Billy for that. We demanded integration almost from the beginning of our meetings in the South. Now today, it's almost impossible for the present generation to understand 
what things were in those days and what it took to be that way and how many threatening letters we got and uh, how many threats against my family as a result of the stand that we took at that time. Billy's public acts against racial segregation took place at his crusades in the South during the early 1950s. He walked into the crusade and they had ropes up. Billy saw them. Blacks were supposed to sit back of that and uh, the whites would sit in front. Uh, I was uh, uh, appalled at it and decided that I had to speak out on it and had to do something about it. I said, no more of this. And uh, I went to the head usher and asked him if he would remove the uh, ropes, and he said no, he wouldn't. Billy got up from the platform and he walked down past the ushers and took the ropes down himself. And I remember that the head usher resigned, and there was quite a little flack about that. His approach was more of trying to get people into the relationship with Christ, that that would transform their mindset and, and the way in which they live. So they would see people differently and thus treat people differently. In New York, Mr. Billy Graham makes a dramatic denunciation. There's something wrong with human nature. What is it? in the nature of men that causes men to have intolerance and racial intolerance. The problem of the world tonight is sin. Here's President Bill Clinton. Almost 50 years ago, my Sunday school teacher took me to Little Rock to hear Billy Graham's crusade. The schools were closed because of Little Rock Central High School integration crisis. The White Citizens Council in Little Rock tried to convince, even to pressure, Billy Graham and all of his people to preach to a segregated audience. And he told them that if they insisted on that, he would cancel the crusade and tell the whole world why. And when he issued the call at the end of this message, thousands came down, holding hands, arm in arm, crying. It was the beginning of the end of the Old South in my home state. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, in that ye have love one to another. That is a supernatural love given to you by God when you receive Christ. Christianity is not a white man's religion, and don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. His gospel is for everyone. Billy's love for people, regardless of race, nationality, or worldview, was tested when he made a trip inside the Iron Curtain in 1982. He was fearless, he was bold, he was always willing to take a risk when it was for the right reason. Let us call the nations of the world to repentance. To be honest, I don't think the communists knew what to do with it. Here's Billy's daughter, Ruth. He was criticized severely, even by evangelicals. But my father knew that God had called him to this. God had given him a burden for this. And uh, he was not going to be dissuaded. I looked on them as human beings in need of the forgiveness of God and in need of a relationship with Christ. And that's how I preached to them, that's how I spoke to them, and that's how I witnessed to them. You could see that there was a, a revolution that was going to come. 
because the people were wanting to be free, free to worship God. The streets were just lined with people. People were standing on everything they could stand on, rooftops everywhere, and my uncle simply held up the Bible. Just held up the Bible. And you're listening to the story of Billy Graham and the love of God facing down totalitarians in the South and segregationists and totalitarians in the Soviet Union and all through the positive and beautiful message of Billy Graham's God. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. We just heard the story of Billy Graham's role in the Cold War and in the segregated South. Let's continue with his story, thanks to the permission from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and their fantastic film, Billy Graham, An Extraordinary Journey. Here's Greg Hengler with the final chapter of his story. Here's President George H.W. Bush. The moral awakening that Billy helped to ignite starting here in America, ignited hope and kept its embers burning in faraway places behind an iron curtain. No question, Billy Graham, with other messengers who carried forth the word, tipped the balance in the Cold War in freedom's favor. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I don't care what ideologies arise in the future. The ultimate winner is going to be the kingdom of God. And then there was September 11th. Here's President George W. Bush and Tom Brokaw. This is a nation uh, that was in shock over unbelievable attacks. We got unmoored, as it were, as a country. We didn't know what to believe in anymore. I think people were in search of something. I knew that we needed to help, you know, the nation recover. Here's Carl Rove and Pastor Rick Warren. The president wanted Reverend Graham to participate in the service at the National Cathedral. And the big problem was that there was uh, no commercial air traffic. In fact, there were no civilian aircraft allowed to fly. We worked with the Defense Department and the FAA to get special permission to fly. On the morning of the service, there was literally one civilian aircraft above the, above the nation, bringing Billy Graham to Washington. September 11 will go down in our history as a day to remember. No matter how hard we try, words simply cannot express the horror, the shock, 
and the revulsion we all feel over what took place in this nation on Tuesday morning. Today this is three days after a vicious attack. Just being in his presence you know, gave you a sense of calm, and the nation needed calm. We come together today to affirm our conviction that God cares for us. The Bible says that he's the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. I sat there watching on television with millions of other people, tears are streaming down my face. We see all around us. He was a voice of reason. He was the pastoral voice to the entire nation. The cross tells us that God understands our suffering. For he took upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ, our sins and our suffering. And from the cross, God declares, I love you. But the story does not end with the cross, for Christ has conquered evil and death and hell. Yes, there's hope. Over the years, beginning with President Harry Truman and extending through the presidency of George W. Bush, Graham served as their pastor, preacher, chaplain, and counselor. Here's Britt Hume, Larry King, and Charles Gibson. I think presidents reached out to him because they wanted what he had. I, never heard him one time criticize I think his relationship was a comforter, a role of advisor, None of us were in on those one-on-one -on -one sessions that he may have had with Bill Clinton when he was in trouble, or with uh, Lyndon Johnson when he despaired over the war, or with George Bush when he was about to send kids to war. While we weren't in on those sessions, it's obvious that all of those presidents said very openly, I can take such comfort from talking to Billy Graham. Here's President George H.W. Bush. Billy Graham. The man, the preacher, the humble farmer's son who helped change the world is a spiritual gift to all of us. Here's the founder of Prison Fellowship, Chuck Colson. One of my favorite stories about Billy Graham is out of the Memphis prison, they set up almost like a stadium inside the big prison yard and brought in the people from all the surrounding prisons. But when it was over, I went up and said, Billy, whenever I preach in the prisons, I always go into the segregation unit because those who are in isolation can't come out. And all the aides were trying to pull Dr. Graham away from the crowds. And he said, no, I want to follow Chuck. And so we went into the segregation unit, walked through from cell to cell. And the only way you could talk to them was through a little hole where you passed food through in this cold, dank, prison concrete floor. Billy Graham sat there and spent about 10 minutes leading that man to Christ. He took longer with that man on death row that day uh, than he had uh, taken almost to speak. Here again is Cliff Barrows. He would be visiting the battlefields and oftentimes the hospitals. And I remember one time there was a soldier they'd brought in. He was in a striker frame. He'd been severely injured on the battlefield. And the only way Bill could see him was to get down on his back and slide under that hospital bed and look at him. And as the fellow looked and saw Mr. Graham on his back, 
and Billy looking at him and saying, God bless you, buddy, let me pray for you. The tears coming down the soldier's eyes, falling on Bill. Here's Billy Graham at a press conference for his final crusade. I've been asked so many times lately, do I fear death? No, I look forward to death with great anticipation. I'm looking forward to seeing God face to face. And that can happen any day. On February 25th, 2018, at 99 years of age, America and the world Receive the news. We have breaking news from North Carolina. The Reverend Billy Graham has died. The world is mourning the loss of... Here's Billy Graham's children speaking at his funeral service. I believe from heaven's perspective that my father's death is as significant as his life. And his life was very significant. My father was faithful. He was available and he was teachable. May we all be that way. My father was not God, but he showed me what God was like. He showed me unconditional love. He has often said that someday you'll read that Billy Graham is dead. He said, don't you believe one word of it. He said, I'll be more alive than I am now. I'll have just changed addresses, that's all. And I can only imagine what it was like for my father to step into heaven. And there was the Lord Jesus Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant. There was the throne of God. Can you just imagine that? My mother, his mother, father, friends, clapping, cheering, bells ringing, trumpets blowing. Not because it was Billy Graham. It's just another child of God had come home. Another child of God. We will leave with these final words from Billy Graham. We're all under the sentence of death. We're all going to die. We all need to be ready to meet God. Have you opened your heart to Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? I'm going to ask you to do that today. This is the moment. Tonight I want Jesus in my heart. You don't have long. You'll be in eternity. And the decision you make tonight may decide where you'll be. Do you know Christ? Are you ready? Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. I do not offer you a dead Christ. I offer you a living Savior. I offer you a living Christ. He is alive at this moment. Alive! And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. 
And a very special thanks once again to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for all that remarkable footage. And my goodness, it's so true. From LBJ to Clinton to the Bushes, all of them sought counsel from Billy Graham. He was not a political animal, and that was what made him so special. And that he challenged the segregationists in the South, where he was born and where he was raised, and to great threat to his own family. And that he also challenged the Soviets and loved on the people there. And again, to consternation from all kinds of folks who said, why are you going to Russia? And what a good answer he had always. Graham had great answers and humble ones, because it was never, as Charlie Gibson said, about Billy Graham. Faithful, available, teachable. What a wonderful thing for a son to say about a father, or for any of us to say about another person. The life story of Billy Graham, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show, and one of our favorite subjects is family. And today you're in for a treat. John and Brody Coyle join us. Both of these guys played for the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide, and I'm going well, to put aside our personal differences because we're broadcasting from Ole Miss uh, right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and they're an arch rival. John was the father. He played for Bear Bryant back in the 70s, won a national championship, could have gone into the NFL, but he didn't. He started the Big Oak Ranch, and he takes in kids there that their parents don't want or just can't raise. And over the years, well, he's taking care of 2,000 kids. Right now, they're taking care of 140 at the Big Oak Ranch. John Quarles' son, well, he was raised at this ranch, and he ended up going to Alabama and being the star quarterback and ended up playing in the NFL. And you won't believe this, young Brody Quarles, is now back at that ranch living even after his NFL career and his really great career as a real estate developer. Thank you guys both for joining us. John, I want to start with you. I want to talk about where you were born. Tell us a little bit about your parents and your early life. Uh, i tell you what, I was very, very blessed. I had a great mom and dad, and uh, my dad uh, grew up really tough. As a matter of fact, uh, Brody and I talked, and my daughter and my wife, about if there had been a Big Oak Ranch for uh, children needing a chance, my dad would have qualified because he just had a dysfunctional family, to say the least. And he looked at me when I was in the little bassinet, and he made a promise to me. He said, I will never miss a game you play. And his dad never saw him play, and he played a little uh, minor league semi-pro baseball and uh, his dad never saw him play his whole career. And that being said, uh, he kept his promise, with the exception of one time when there was a death in the family and he had to go take care of business. Other than that, he was always there, whether we were in Los Angeles or Dallas or all over the southeast uh, playing for Coach Bryant. Uh, he was always there, and um, they uh, they loved me. I mean, I, I wish I could make it complicated, but uh, I was their life, and they made sure that, when everybody else was being stupid, that he wasn't going to let me. And um, he was a little over guy, 5'11 guy from New York. But uh, 
I, I was afraid of him. I mean, even when I was a lot bigger than him, uh, he looked at me once. He said, it, it, you know, you're bigger, stronger, faster. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, it don't take big, strong, and fast to pull a trigger. And uh, that kind of cleared the air of confusion. And so uh, I had great parents. I was blessed. And, and your parents instilled certain values, uh, John, in you, I think, deep. Uh, talk about some of those. Talk about uh, faith in your family and what role that played, what it instilled in you and your life and your choices, John. Uh, my parents carried me to church every weekend. I mean, we, we didn't miss a Sunday. And uh, I got to just witness him working, for example, working with youth groups. And I would see my dad take $10 and go buy a kid a glove because that kid's dad wouldn't or couldn't. And I just watched that my whole life. And that's one of the things we talk about as a family is that there's many things I do that now Brody does that we both learn from my dad. And, uh, like, you know, just uh, courtesy and there's no excuse for rudeness and there's no substitute for just being courteous to people. Be nice. And uh, that's one of the things I admire about my dad and Brody, too, is uh, I've, I've never seen Brody be rude to anyone that wanted an autograph or a picture. He's always been very kind about that, and we both learned it from my dad. And I would assume that your dad taught you a little bit about work, too, John. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. He said, uh, when, he, when I was little, he said, don't do it if you're going to do it half-baked. Uh, but he didn't say baked. And uh, yeah. we have uh, applied that now to our lives, and uh, that's one thing that's really neat is, is when people come to the ranch, they see um, quality without extravagance. And uh, we think if you're going to do it, just do it right, build it to last, and because uh, it's going to wear your name and our family's name. And uh, that's one of the things I learned from him. <laughs> and uh, now our, our grandchildren learn that from their dads. And you had another male role model, and I want to talk briefly about him now, John, for about a minute. And then, Brody, we're going to talk a bit about uh, this role model and this mentor, too. And his name was Bear Bryant. And, John, just for about a, a minute or two, talk about some of the things that you and the boys who played for Bear learned from him off the grid, off the X's and O's, off the football field. Uh, what did you learn from him, and what did he teach you as men? Um, show your class, have a plan, work hard, and uh, when your ribs are cracked and your finger is dislocated, uh, you put it back in place and you keep playing. Uh, there's no room for quitting. And his theory was if he could make you quit on Tuesday, you would quit on Saturday. And to be honest, Saturday was the easiest day of the week because uh, getting prepared for Saturday. But I think the very first meeting he set the tone, he said, quote, don't show me how good you are. Don't prove to me what you've got. He said, just join us and let's win the national championship. And that was it. And we lost one regular season game in three years. We won the national championship my senior year. And uh, we have just been so very blessed to, to take many of the things he taught us and apply them now with our children and um, uh, mental, mental toughness. I mean, that's missing with a lot of kids today. And, and, and I know Brody's on the phone with us, but uh, he's mentally the toughest man I know. And uh, I have just watched him in his whole career. And I learned a lot of that from my dad and from Coach Bryant. Well, hold that thought, John. And when we come back, more on this remarkable father-son story about male mentorship and about so much more. This is Lee Habib, John and Brody Croyle for the hour. A remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Quarrel, and we were talking about male mentorship, we were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. And John, you had uh, just been talking about Bear Bryant. I remember you telling me a story once about Bear Bryant saying that in, in the end, life comes down to a few key plays. Talk about that, because I think it's so important, not just metaphorically for football, but I think in all of life. You know, Lee, um, before every ball game, 36 times I heard him say, in this game, there's going to be four or five plays that will determine the outcome of the ball game. You may be the hero, you may be the coach, but rest assured the plays are coming. And there's people listening to the three of us right now. And if I or you or Brody were to say, name five plays that changed your life, every adult can go to those five plays right now with no hesitation. Some are positive. Some are negative, but we've all got those plays. And, and for me, uh, just it's just been a series of plays where, and and I, I hope that you know uh, I come across the right way with this. But God's got a plan for all of us, and if we'll just listen and listen carefully and then follow that plan, everything's going to be just fine. And um, that's one of the things we learned. And and when I was nineteen, one of the plays in my life was just meeting a little boy whose mother was a prostitute, and he was the banker and the timekeeper for his mom, and I told that little boy he could become a Christian. He came back the following year and told me word for word what I taught him the summer before, and I realized at 19 I had been given a gift, and I know it is rare to know why you got put on earth at 19, but it just worked out perfectly, and then Coach Bryant was instrumental in getting us to build a home for children, and 2,000 children have benefited from what he and my dad have taught in me. Well, it's interesting, you know, when in your, you're in your senior year, here's Coach Bryant, who's legend for sending boys to the NFL, and you have this crisis. You're not sure you want to go to the NFL, and if you do, you're only going for the money because you want to help kids. You want to work at a ranch or something. You have something in your head that says, God's gifted me with this. And talk about that moment with Bear, because you're seeking his guidance, John. You're seeking his mentorship, and what happens on that, that, that? I think that's one of the big plays in your life, too. It must be. What does Coach tell you, and what happens next? Uh, very simply put, um, leadership is simple. Uh, you got to know where you're going, and you're able to persuade people to go with you. And he had that in loads. I mean, just dripping out his nose. And I went to see him and said, Coach Brian, I'd like to get the money to throw a ball and start a home for children. And he looked at me and did not hesitate. He said, don't play pro ball unless you're willing to marry it. He said, go build that ranch you've been talking about. I walked out of his office and never looked back. And I say this with all humility, Lee. I, I have never been depressed. I've been mad, angry, tired, exhausted, filled with anger. I mean, I've been all those, but I've never been depressed because uh, I'm running on the road that he and others have helped build. Yeah, and it was interesting. You, you, know, you, you must have left that office thinking, okay, I'm going to start a ranch. How do I do that? How do I do that? And yet in came, John, in came the love. I mean, in came money for you to support that vision. Some from some local businessmen. Talk about one guy who really stepped up, a guy you played some ball with in Alabama, who went on to be, well, in the Hall of Fame. All right. Uh, John Hanna, he and I came into Alabama as freshmen, and uh, he is, by many standards, the best offensive lineman to ever play in the NFL. As a matter of fact, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And John had a tremendous career, and um, 
he and I met just before I was getting ready to get started with the ranch, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm raising support to build this home for children. He said, say what? Uh, what do you need? I said, 30. He said, well, that's my bonus for that year in 1974, and he gave us his bonus, and we took that money and started Big Oak Ranch, and uh, he's been a friend for a long time, and he jumped in when a lot of people didn't want to. Um, so we have just been so very, very blessed, and that first year we took his money and another friend purchased the land and i'm literally sitting in the yard and i just said lord i'm willing and uh, that's all god wanted to hear and the rest is history yep and the rest is history and and brody you know you grew up uh, around this guy this this john crawl uh talk about your dad and and don't blush john and maybe you need to even turn it off for a minute but brody tell (laughs) tell tell the country about your relationship with your dad you growing up what did you see how is your life different than some of the other boys you knew? Tell me about your early life, Brody, and, and what, what it was like growing up on a ranch like the Big Oak Ranch, which, by the way, folks, is in Gadsden, Alabama, a beautiful place to live. Well, uh, the best way that I know how to explain it is actually a story that goes with my son and the birth of my first son. And I'm sitting there, and he's now five years old. And you know how it is when you have a baby, and everybody comes in, and they're all excited, and they're gushing about how pretty he is, and how, which, you know, it's got to be a lot sometimes, because there's some newborns that just, man, they just got a, just a goofy look about them. <laughs> but, uh, but mine, of course, was not. Right, but, uh, of I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, he came in, and he was the last one to come in. And uh, he had kind of let everybody else, like he does, and like he was raised by his dad, and uh, we all try and follow suit. You know, you let everybody else go first, and you, you're the last one. And uh, so he was the last one to kind of come in and uh, do all that and get to hold his grandson. And uh, he had something in his pocket, and uh, he handed me something. And, I, you know, like your dad's giving you something for the first time. You know, as a first-time dad, you're kind of expecting this, that, or other, and it's a compass. And I'm sitting there, I'm going, well, all right, Dad, well, thanks for the compass. He goes, you know what it is? I was like, not really. He said, it's called a lensatic compass. And basically what it is back in World War I, uh, back before all this technology and everything, the commander would call in, and he would call, or the general would call in, and he would tell his captains, all right, I want you to go 110 by 100 degrees north, northeast. I want you to find your mark. And you could take that compass and you could lock it in on that mark. And no matter which way you spun, no matter how lost you got, you could always find your true north. And uh, he said, and you get to that spot and you wait for the next instruction. And he said, he said, bud, you're entering into being a dad. He said, uh, never lose sight of your true north. He said, always understand what your true north is. He said, there's going to be a lot of seasons. There's going to be a long journey. He said, but always stick to your true north and what that true north lies in. He said, and if you do that, he said, I'm going to go to your boy in 18 years. He said, I'm going to go to Sawyer, and I'm going to say, Sawyer, who's the godliest man that you know? And he said, buddy, if you stay to that true north, he said, he's going to look me dead in the eyes, and he's going to say, my daddy's the godliest man that I know. And I tell you that story to tell you that, uh, my dad is the godliest man that I know, and it is because he always stuck to his true north. It is because he never wavered. He was always the same man every single day, 
And I always tell people the best way to learn is to watch. And I got to literally watch the best, and he and my mom live it every single day. That's a beautiful story, Brody. And you grew up on the ranch, didn't you? Talk about that. You're around all these kids. And now you've got to be, in a sense, the true north to them, don't you? Uh, you know what? Growing up, uh, I was just one of the boys. And that's I literally went straight from the hospital to the ranch. Yep. It was the only life that I ever knew. And those were my brothers. And those were my sisters at the girls' ranch. And they were no different than me. The only difference is that... I had my real mom and dad, and my, my parents raised me to look at it that way. And I now live at the ranch with my two boys, and they have 70 brothers that live here with them and 70 sisters at the girls' ranch, and they're looking at it the exact same way. And you know what? That is a, uh, that's a great perspective that um, you know our, my parents instilled in me and my sister and our family. Is that, you know what? We're very blessed that... Uh, because we get to see the other side of it. And you know, we get to see the parents that didn't want the job. We get to see the parents that struggle with different things and can't handle uh, taking care of their own children. And uh, the awesome, awesome part is that God's called us, that we get to play a small role and get to fill that void and bridge that gap. So uh, all these kids and, you know, the 140 we take care of on a daily basis and the 2,000 that have been here now know what family looks like because God placed a calling on a man's life 43 years ago. Well, what a blessing that you followed in your dad's footsteps. You know, you went into the NFL, Brody, and a lot of guys go into the NFL, and the North Star becomes, well, you know what the North Star becomes for guys in the NFL. And yeah. it's, it's tragic, and it's sad. If you, don't, if you get that much money, that young, and that much fame, well, life gets difficult. On the other side, we're going to take a break here. We're going to continue our conversation with Brody, and then bring back John, because I want to have the story told of how this place, the Big Oak Ranch, got formed, and more importantly, how it evolved from a place for boys to a ranch for girls. This is Lee Habib, an extraordinary father-son story, one of my favorites, and we spend a lot of time on the subject, folks. John Croyle, Brody Croyle, for the hour. This is Our American Stories. is our american stories and we're back with john and brody coyle and brody we were just talking about the nfl i just you know talked a bit about it and you know you you were there you were on the cover of sports illustrated my goodness as a young man and and then you find yourself in the nfl talk about how important it was to have a dad like you had and that north star that you had in your head and and i believe also this this relationship you had with god how did that help protect you from many of the Let's just say the trappings that can come with instant fame and a whole lot of cash, Brody. Uh, well, you know, growing up the way that I grew up and growing up grounded the way that I grew up obviously helped. But you know what? Uh, no one is above uh, getting sucked in by that. No one is above uh, 
the lifestyle that comes with that. And I'm no different, you know, and honestly, I mean, I didn't do a lot of the things and end up in the media and in the news for doing, but you know what, when I was 11 years old, I walked in to uh, actually my parents' room, and I'd never played one down of organized football. And I walked in, I looked at them, I said, I'm going to play in the NFL. And versus telling me, hey, buddy, why don't we worry about making the JV squad or something like that? <laughs> yeah. They uh, they said, shoot for the moon, man. Worst case scenario, we'll end up in the stars. And uh, I'm ashamed to say, to a fault, football became my god at that point in time. Now, don't get me wrong. I could, I could say all the right things, and I could do all the right things. And maybe in my mind, I thought that I still had my priorities straight. But football became my god. It's all I chased. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I've, I've heard something the other day. If guy's not first on your list, he's not on your list. So, uh I fell victim to that, and I chased it, and I loved everything that went along with it. But we always talk about, you know, at the ranch, if you know who you are, you know what you are, and you know why you're here, then God will honor that, and you'll, you know why you're put on earth and what your purpose is. And uh, I had a foundation that I always knew what to come back to. And uh, I was blessed. I have a godly wife, and I have a godly family that, uh, literally lived it every day and uh, let me watch. And uh, that foundation and that um, uh, just loving spirit and that knowing where you come from. I mean, I've, I've had 11 surgeries. I've had three broken vertebras. I've had dislocated ribs. I've had broken ribs. I've had dislocated jaws. I was always too small to play football. I was just too stupid to understand it. Uh, so I always do what the other side looked like that a lot of people don't get to see on the glamour part of it. Yep. But at the same point in time, every time I'd have a setback, every time I'd have a bump in this journey, that was God obviously getting my attention, saying, hey, shift it back to me, bud. Come on back to me. But there was also where I grew up. I'd sit there and, you know, I'd feel sorry for myself for a little bit. And uh, literally a couple days into it, I could sit there and go, I got six months of rehab. And I got boys and girls that I grew up with. They're literally just trying to put the pieces of their life back together. And it always put it back into perspective for me. Yeah, and we all need it. We I don't know how anybody – actually, frankly, I don't know how people live without it or get through without it. John, let's go back now. You, you, you've approached Bear Bryant. You've gotten this help to start a ranch. But you don't know what, what the heck you're doing. I mean, you have maybe some vision in your head. Some might say still doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> some might. Some might. So you, you stumble out there. How do you find your first kids? What do you do? Tell the story of that first year, that first two, of just getting it going. And, and talk about the self-doubt for all the folks out there who have doubts. And I, don't, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have doubts. The key is how you fight through those doubts. You have fears. How do you fight through those fears? Talk about all of that if you can, John. To be blunt, uh, we purchased the land, and uh, I was sitting in the front yard with my dog, and that was all we had was a 120-acre ranch, a 1,200-square-foot farmhouse, and within two weeks, we had five boys. We got one out of a boxcar at a uh, tire company. We got one out of a barn. We got one out of a home in New Orleans. We got one out of a um, home up in Boston, Massachusetts that he had set fire to. I mean, we had five boys in two weeks. And one thing I've learned and, and, and our family believes, attempt something so great for God that it's destined for failure unless he is in it. 
And based upon that, I was just stupid enough to say, come on, God, let's go. I'm willing. And uh, that first boy is now 61 years old, and he's a grandfather. And um, one one of the things that really worked, and and I'm going to kind of toss it back a minute, is uh, I looked at my wife the other day, and uh, I said, you know what I told somebody today? And she said, what? I said, somebody asked me what you were like. And she said, what did you tell them? I said, my wife thinks I can do anything. And uh, that kind of support is the reason Brody is where he is, you are, I am, any man that's made it. He's got that that core belief that his mate's right there with him fighting the fight. And uh, my wife has known this, and then Brody's wife jumped in, and the best line I've ever heard my daughter-in-law say is when he told her he wanted to go back to the ranch, and she said, tell me when, and I'll have us packed. Wow. Now, how many, how many... 22, 23-year-old kids that have been married for, you know, just a short period of time, look at their husband and say, you tell me when, I'm in. Wow. Uh, that's strong. And as a matter of fact, if anything ever happens to Kelly and Brody, I don't care where he goes, Kelly's coming home with me. <laughs> so uh, it's all good. Now talk about he your, means that, too. Talk about your bride, because here you are, you're on the cusp of, I mean, you could have gone into the NFL, you could have done a lot of things with your life, and you're sitting there with this dream in your head. Talk about, you know, first sharing that with her. And did she look at you like you were crazy? Um, did she say, I'm in? Did she have the same faith you had about this vision? Real quickly, um, uh, I asked her to marry me on the boys' ranch. And I said, I love you. Will you marry me? And we're going to have 80 boys. She said, let's go through them one at a time. And uh, we went through them again. And uh, she said something about three years ago that just nailed me. Uh, I'd always said, I got chosen to do this. She chose to come do it, and she had a choice. And uh, anyway, she looked at me about three years ago. She said, did it ever cross your mind maybe I was chosen too? <laughs> I picked up my legs. I picked up my heart. I busted. Thing in the- busted. Major busted. <laughs> Major that, busted. And uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, she, she's had every reason to just tell me goodbye. But uh, she's been here 42 years, and uh, we're where we are now because of Brody's mama. But, Brody, let's talk about your mom, uh, because John just talked about his bride. But talk about your mom and the role she's played in your development and how it's helped you in some ways to even choose your wife. Because in the end, if we see what a mom looks like, then this informs us when we go to choose our wives. It's just funny you say that. That's why Dad and I both are laughing. Because, uh, <laughs> one, my mother my mother is just, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, just to keep the doors open, uh, I mean, Dad would speak, you know, 300 times a year. So, I mean, he was on the road a lot. And uh, so my mother is a strong, strong woman that uh, is just a godly woman that uh, she is a calculus teacher, and there she one, so she's typically smarter than you and everything. And then secondly, there is no gray. You're either right or you're wrong. So uh, there was never any uh, talking her into anything. You're either right or you're wrong. And uh, my mother is just a great, great woman. But we, we both giggled because uh, there's so many things, I mean, like all of us, that we grow up and we go, man, I'm definitely not going to marry somebody like that. Like the things that get on your nerves about your mom or your dad, and you're sitting there and going, "Man, there's no way I can't wait." And then I married someone who is exactly like her. 
like carries herself the same way, has the same fiery spirit, the same will put you in your place in a heartbeat. And uh, I honestly, I couldn't be more blessed. And my two little boys couldn't be more blessed because of the precedent that my mother set and honestly the precedent that uh, my wife's family set. And uh, now my boys get to grow up and have the same uh, characteristics in a godly woman. And like you said, now they understand and they get to look for because they get to watch every day. And then one day, uh, I pray that they marry somebody just like their mama and just like their grandmama because uh, those are two great women. We're talking to John and Brody Croyle. And when we come back, a final segment with this remarkable father-son team, this remarkable father-son story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we continue with John and Brody Coral. And we were talking about male mentorship. We were talking about moms, and now the subject of fatherlessness. When we do father-son segments, uh, one of the things we've learned about fatherlessness is not just the impact it has on boys, their propensity to join gangs, their propensity for jail, for drug abuse, for violence. Uh, and we know why that happens. We're guys, but what happens to women without fathers is a tale that's not told often enough. And so, John, ultimately, you had this uh, big oak ranch for boys. Tell the story that got you to think about something special for those girls. Uh, One of the plays of my life, I was walking down the hallway of a court, and I glanced down. I was walking with a social worker, and uh, there was a little 12-year-old girl sitting there. She had honey blonde hair that was really dirty. And uh, she looked up, and she had beautiful, beautiful, sad green eyes. And she had been raped by her father while her mother held her down. And uh, we do what we do for a living. And, and our family, we can spot an abused child about a mile away. And uh, that's all we've known. And uh, I just glanced down at her, and um, I picked her up. And I remember uh, they'd had to do a hysterectomy to put her back together. And uh, she was just destroyed. And uh, I told the judge, if you send her back home, the father will do it again and kill her in six months. I was wrong. Uh, he did it in three months and killed her. And I promised God that when the time was right, we'd build a home for girls. So there's that anchor in the ground, that stake that will not move. And uh, that's why now we have a 325-acre ranch in Springville. And uh, there's uh, approximately 70 girls living there that are getting a chance at life. And we're trying to explain it. I'm, I'm going to quote I'm gonna quote Brody on this one when he says, we show girls what a real family and a real mom and dad look like and what a real father figure looks like and uh, that is just so essential and there's women listening to us right now that would give anything they own to have their dad just look at them as they were going up and said you know what you're my princess and you're the most beautiful little girl i've ever seen and i love you they've never heard that and they are literally scarred for life and when they marry it takes a special man to lift them out of that dungeon of uh, self-doubt and self-confidence. And um, that's just what we've seen. And now when I see Brody walk in and a little girl runs up and hugs his neck, 
And he just uh, looks at her and says, as long as we breathe, no one's ever going to ever hurt you like that again. That's a very good day. That's a great day. And, you know, I, I have a bride who, who whose mom worked real hard, but she was a single mom, and my bride was vulnerable, and, and she fell into sexual abuse with a, a man in the family who just took advantage of the opportunity. And it, it cost my wife dearly and, uh, in the end, scarred her in ways that, you know, to this day, it, it still lingers. And she talks routinely with young young women about this and older women about the impact of not having a father present. Um, and the sexual abuse part, uh, the guys, as you well know, because this is what your life is, the numbers are off the charts. Why do you think it is? What are the women looking for because of that absent father? What do you think is actually going on psychologically with these kids? Brody, you want to take that? The reason that we say, if you hadn't ever seen it, how are you ever going to repeat it? And uh, the thing that is so, it, Dad always told me, he said, the hardest thing you're going to be able to have to do he says, when a little girl comes up and she thinks she doesn't even know who God is. We had somebody the other day that was doing a devotion. One of our house dads was doing a devotion with his kids. And uh, with his and one, he's like, man, I felt like I just I was so prepared and I was so ready and I was ready for this devotion. And, man, he's like, I was teaching calculus. And he said, we had a new boy. And literally, I'm halfway through the devotion. And the boy looks at me and he goes, who's Jesus? He's like... It was the biggest slap in the face to me because he's like, I had no clue because I just assumed. And we have girls that go, so this Jesus you're talking about, um, he's everywhere, right? Sure is, baby. He's all. He's got a great plan for everybody's life. Sure does, baby. Well, where was he when my dad was hurting me? And that's a hard, hard question that, honestly, we on this earth probably don't have the answer to. Right. But the best way that I know how to tell you of what God can do and how God can, I mean, he obviously uses us and uses uh, his children as lights for him. And the best way for our kids to understand the love of a father and the love of their creator and the love of their father is to see it through their parents. And unfortunately, I mean, we had a little girl that was from the time she was five until she was 15. She was raped every single day by her dad. And that was the life that she knew. And I got to sit there and I got to look at that little girl and I got to make her the same four promises that my dad has made for the past 40 years. And I got to look at her and I got to say, baby, I love you. I don't want anything in return. Just give us an opportunity to earn your love back. I said, I'll never lie to you. Anybody sitting in this room and in that room would be me, my sister, my dad, the director, the social worker, the house parent, anybody that's going to have an integral part in her life is going to be in that room. It's like, if anyone in this room lies to you, they're fired on the spot. Do you understand? She's like, mm-hmm. So we'll stick with you till you're grown. We, this coming fall, we'll have 25 kids in college. And say so whatever it is you want to do in life, we want to help you get there. I said, in four, there's boundaries don't cross them. She went, all right. I said, baby, you get a fifth promise. And Dad said it earlier. And I, I just looked at her, and I said, baby, as long as I breathe, nobody's ever going to hurt you like that again. Do you understand me? And she went, okay. And uh, some kids literally get it instant. Some kids that are abused, especially girls, will just, it's like, here, you take this. Get it off of me. Uh, and they will spill everything just to say, you know, it's off me now. And thank you. Some kids it takes years. Some kids we don't ever get to see the fruit. And uh, But you know what? That's okay. And for a year and a half, this girl fought. 
and man, she pushed, and she just pushed her house parents to the brink every day. Made sure that everything that I had told her was we were going to hold up our end of the bargain because everybody in her life had let her down because she had had that trust muscle ripped out of her so many times by the man that was supposed to protect her. And literally, after a year and a half, she went up to her house, Dad, the same man that the first week she was there and they had got through having dinner, she walked up to him and goes, is this when we go have sex now? Because that's the only life that she had ever known. She finally, she told, she finally told us, she said, I started to say yes, just where it wouldn't hurt so bad, where I didn't feel like I was getting raped. And after a year and a half, she went up to that same man, and she said, I don't know what it is you got, she said, but I want it. And they got to share with her how to become a Christian, how to change her life. And why do I tell you that story? Is because he showed her the love of a father. And she finally understood that, you know what, that man that used to do that to me and that man that used to hurt me and that man that pushed me to the brink, that man that made me question life and who I was and if I wanted to continue it, now she's gotten a year and a half with a godly man showing her what a father and what a father's love is supposed to look like. And because of that, she's now going to spend eternity in heaven because she now can understand the love of a father in heaven. Uh that is a good day, and that is uh, what we get to do on a daily basis. And people have said, you know, well, what if y'all would take Christian out of your name? What if they push you to take Christian out of your name? And you know what? That day might be coming, that they try to push us to do that. And they say, well, you know, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll do that unless y'all have Christian out of your name. You know what? We know that there is no change uh, without God Almighty. And uh, we know there is no change without that Christian thing. We know there is no change without showing the love of a uh, father, which then they can understand what they were put on life for. And uh, unfortunately, the abuse and the um, level of abuse and level of sexual abuse is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, but that's what we get to do, and that's the kids that we get to help. And uh, I... People ask me all the time now, well, where do you see the ranch going? I say, man, I'd love for us to be out of business in 20 years. That would be amazing. That means no kids are getting hurt. That means no kids are seeing pain. That means no kids are getting raped by their fathers. But unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. And uh, we will continue to uh, just follow that lead and follow God's lead and uh, continue to offer uh, what he intended for a family to be. Well, and as I told you guys during the break, uh, and Brody, and, and I thank your dad for this, um, because of these stories, I had not been a believer. I was, I had a child and I needed something more than what my dad taught me. He was not a believer. And, uh, ultimately witnessing the power of love, the inexplicable power that could have come from no other source. It led me to Christ myself. And, uh, and we don't get that personal on the show. I don't tend to share my own views, but on this one, I, I have no other option. And I just want to thank you, John, for what you did for me, what you've done for all these kids, and, and what you've done uh, for, for, for God, because in the end you're serving him doing what you do. And it must have just tickled you, John, to hear your son telling that story. It is, and uh, my wife and I, every morning we wake up, we pinch ourselves of how blessed we are. And um, I, I want to say this to anybody who listen to us. You can't be bad enough that God won't come get you. And you can't run far enough away that his hand is not on the other side trying to pull you back home. So we've all been there. 
and nobody's got it going on. But the neat thing about it is, Lee, you, me, Brody, our family, we will spend the rest of eternity together. And uh, I saw an atheist I met, and he just said, well, I don't believe in God. That's okay. You're going to meet him one day. And so it's all good. And so we're just blessed that you let us be a part of what you're sharing with the nation. Well, thank you guys both, and I'm going to get out and visit you, I promise, and it'll happen in the next 30 days, and I look forward to seeing you both. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lee. Sounds great. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. John and Brody Coral. We've had them for the hour, and my goodness, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.